Hey, Jeff, do you have the guts to put up your spooks? I have the spooks to put up my guts. Shit. <laughs> This week's theme, comic books. This is sort of our Comic-Con special. I am presenting an episode of Tales from the Crypt from Season 2, Number 13, called Corman's Calamity. So this episode starts with the Crypt Keeper. And I don't know how much you saw of this, Ryan. I don't know if you were watching this little window on your computer while you were at work. Indeed I was. So did you see that the Crypt Keeper was making a recursive illustration. What does that mean? The Crypt Keeper was drawing a picture of the Crypt Keeper drawing a picture of a Crypt Keeper drawing a picture. I saw him drawing a picture of a Crypt Keeper, but I didn't see the third level of Crypt Keeping. What's kind of cool about that opening visual is that Tales from the Crypt on HBO was adapting stories that started as comic book stories. Indeed, yeah. And the story they're adapting is about a comic book artist. And so this is like the most weirdly recursive episode of Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, it's cool. It's a real Ouroboros, which is a snake eating its own ass. I wonder how many of the illustrations we saw therein were from the actual books. I feel like the covers they show you are from the books because, you know, they license the story and the Uh art and all that. But um, Do you think those were the real Tales from the Crypt offices, or do you think it was a soundstage? Well, I'll get into it, and, oh, then, okay. and then we should talk about that, because yeah. it is kind of curious. So, our story begins um, with uh, Harry Anderson, um, beloved actor of Night Court fame. And, and It fame. <laughs> oh, that's right. He was in the TV version of It. And so, it opens with the song Just My Imagination, which is a pretty epic needle drop yeah. for uh, an episodic television and he is in the Tales from the Crypt comic book offices, and he is illustrating a story, which is another turn uh-huh. on the recursive loop. So it's a Tales from the Crypt episode from, based on Tales from the Crypt comic about a guy who works in the Tales from the Crypt offices making comics. It's, I don't know. I like that sort of thing. Anyway, so he's there... He's working hard on some kind of, you know, monster drawing or some kind of monster attack. And he's kind of struggling with it. And uh, I'm going to introduce a new uh, criteria for review. Twist. You know, because you had previously mentioned Dutch angles and things like that. Mm -hmm. The kind of things you look out for. Uh, And we talked about this in a previous episode about how terrible the relationships are. And namely, the wives are oh in boy. these stories. And so the new criteria is how long until the awful wife shows up. And I'm going to call this time to shrew. And the time to shrew in this episode was two minutes and 45 seconds. These poor 80s wives of these horrible 80s writers. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think it was long suffering 50s wives from mm. 50s writers because a lot of this. A lot of these tales from the crypt stories were all penned in the 50s. And, yeah, I and, wonder how many of the wives appeared in the actual books. <laughs> well, I was wondering, you know, yet again we were getting this really 
heavy, weird 50s influence in the music and the costuming and the, the dialogue. And I was like, what is it with this weird 50s flavor? And I looked it up. Tales from the Crypt ran from 1950 to 1955. Oh, not a long time. Yeah, but because... The, or EC Comics, I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought it was defunct by the time the show was yeah, going. Yeah, EC Comics, uh, which published Tales from the Crypt, ran from 50 to 55. And because this guy works at the Tales from the Crypt, everything is kind of 50s? <laughs> Pseudo 50s. We'll have um, to go and research this episode's basis and see if there's a shrew wife. Oh, by the story wouldn't work without it. So anyway. I guess that's so, true. Harry Anderson plays Jim Corman. And like I said, he's stuck on the comic. He's working over the weekend. Uh, two minutes and 45 seconds later, shrew wife arrives and berates him for not coming home, accuses him of philandering with the secretary, makes fun of his job, calls him a loser, uh, calls their marriage a waste, and finally, to top it all off, mocks him for not being fertile. It's not enough that you gotta draw these dumb cartoons instead of getting a real job, but you can't even keep your paws off the secretaries in this goddamned office. I gave the best years of my life, and for what? A stingy two-timing loser. You can't even give me children, you little wimp. She busted for not taking his fertility pills, and he complains that they're experimental and they may have unknown side effects. He says they're making his imagination fertile. But he he relents and he takes the pill and he angrily sketches what I'm calling a battle toad. <laughs> you remember the battle toads? Oh yeah. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Totally radical. Okay. Uh, but I like that he's on these experimental boner meds and they're giving his imagination a boner. <laughs> <laughs> so when his imagination has a boner, he draws uh, a battle toad uh, eating a dude. Hard cut to a late night laundromat, and um, Jim's doing laundry. He sees a lady and kind of gives her a wink on his way out. And soon after, uh, the power goes out, and a switchblade wielding redneck comes in, you know, immediately intent on doing terrible things to this woman. She pulls out a police badge. He doesn't care. She gives him a judo throw. But, like, doesn't finish him off? She gives him the judo oh, throw, yeah, yeah. and then he stands right up and says, that's going to cost you. Yeah, Surely you couldn't that, do that again. That Bruce Lee stuff is going to cost you. I'm going to make you pay for that. Um, that's when the battle toad that Jim Corman was drawing earlier emerges from a washing machine, grabs the guy, and bites his head off. So then we are treated to another hard cut. It's the homicide scene. Um, and, uh, the cops are all standing around, bagging up the body. They don't believe her. Um, and the next day, she's in her cop outfit, she's walking the beat, and she sees a newsstand with all the Tales from the Crypts, and, um, not only does she recognize the cover with the Battletoad coming out of a washing machine, but also all the previous issues match the weird calls they've been getting. Um, she finds his name on the cover and rushes off. And we are treated to our first comic book page wipe, hmm. which was a nice touch. So later, uh, Jim is drawing a monstrous version of his wife after an angry phone call. And little does he know, it's like manifesting in the shadows of the office. We see this like thing coming into existence. 
And then he kind of looks at the sketch and he's like, meh. He crumples it up and it fades. Uh, the monster vanishes. He leaves. He gets in his car and the lady cop is waiting in the backseat of his car. And he turns around and he's like, it's you. He recognized it from the laundromat, which makes me wonder how she tracked him down, found his car, broke into her car, but didn't know who it was. I don't know. Very she weird. saw the label on his undies. There you go. So she tells him about the monster appearing in the laundromat, and she wants to test the theory that his drawings shall come to life. And uh, he's like, all right, I think it's crazy, but you know, you're hot, so I'll do it. Yeah, he immediately tries to philander. Yeah. And so um, she's, he's like, what do you want me to draw? And she's like, something repulsive. Why not like a kitten? A, something harmless. Or why not like a million dollars? The chemistry between the builds, and he tries to kiss her, but she demurs. And when he asks why, she says, I know nothing about you, but that you draw horrible things. Which is accurate. Yeah, fair. So she's a great detective. But, but she wants it still. She's like very clear. man. There is chemistry between them. Maybe she's just. <laughs> I think she's just super horny from too much time on the job. Maybe she's super horny because otherwise she's enamored that he inadvertently saved her from a switch switchblade wielding redneck. But also, you know, he's taking experimental uh, virility medicine, and I don't know if it's like someone's coming through his pores. Oh, yeah, that's know. true. Because he can manifest his own desires. Yeah. So, anyhow, shit. He says, like, well, if you don't like me drawing horrible things, you know, I'll change careers right now. I'll start drawing romance. And then she's like, okay, I'm in. They start macking. Uh, my next note is that this episode is ridiculous of <laughs> 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 how quickly things are moving. So, cut to a group of kids playing in Warehouse. Um, the repulsive monster that he drew is this cool, webbed up slime monster. And emerges from an old refrigerator and, and really puts the spook on these kids. So the lady cop calls him up and was like, Hey, you're never going to believe what happened. That monster you drew, it showed up. He's like, Oh yeah? Why don't you tell me over a candlelit dinner? And she's like, Alright. And he puts <laughs> down the phone. He's feeling very satisfied with himself. Little did he realize that his shrew wife was standing there and she heard it all. <laughs> He's stone cold busted. She's like, I'm going to go get something from the car. He's like, yeah, whatever. And he starts drawing that monster version of his wife again. She comes back with a giant hand cannon and is going to blow him away when the monster wife manifests. And it's a horrible monster that looks like her, but is wearing like the same outfit. And the real wife can't help herself. She just... Even though I think the monster wife is kind of bent on attacking Harry. Uh, Harry. And it would have been kind of poetic justice if he had been killed by the monster wife. Um, poetic something. Poetic something. But instead, she cannot help herself and she just starts ripping on this monster <laughs> and insulting it. Well, that's flattering. Is that how you picture me, Jim? As a rancid heap of garbage? God, what an eyesore. Why don't you feed it a laxative and put it out of its misery? Try some skin lotion, zit face. Your complexion could scare a proctologist. <laughs> to the point where the monster gets offended and attacks her. And they start fighting. And uh, <clears throat> Jim is like, ho ho, those, these two terrible women deserve each other. Throws away the magic boner pills. Leaves to go on the date. 
And with his wife mutilated, he can live happily ever after. Yeah. And that's the episode. Yeah, as you were saying earlier, don't throw away the boner pills. Use them to create millions of dollars and lots of kittens for yourself and your new love interests. Yeah, I've been thinking about this, and I guess the sweet thing about it is that he was such a put-upon guy, and his wife was such a hideous shrew, that even though he had almost godlike power to rewrite reality... All he wanted was a, was a loving partner. Yeah. And once he had that, he's like, I'm content. I'm throwing away these magic boner pills. That's very nice. You know, he wasn't like, oh, I wanna, I'm going to draw hot women and, yeah. and do lots of flandering. He just the, wanted that one soulmate. Who he's known for one day. Yeah. Uh, I kept thinking the whole time, like, okay, well, how long until he sees this one as a horrible shrew? Because it's always nice at first. Probably his relationship with his wife was all fun and games at first, too. Until a couple years went down, and then she became a quote-unquote hideous shrew monster. So he's got the butterflies now for old lady detective, but in a year or so, he's going to get tired of her, and he's going to start drawing her as a monster. A, we don't know that. His true wife was the drawings. Yeah, perhaps. The the love of comic book illustration. But uh, I feel like Lady Cop is... um... Smart, capable, independent. Like she has her own thing going on. She doesn't need him. Extremely vulnerable. Uh, vulnerable to the advances of a Harry. What's his name? Are you talking about the redneck Harry, with the switch? Harry play? Dean Morgan what's or his, uh, Jim Corman? No, Jim Corman. Well, again, it does I mean, raise the question. He is sex on a stick, but <laughs> did did he? Does she did, have free will he, in this situation? Right? And then, in which case, because that the, thing is going to their collapse. relationship ended. With a shot that perfectly mirrored the romance comic he was drawing. Yeah, yep. Or the, their relationship began with a yeah, shot. Yeah, the relationship perfectly. began. The last shot we saw uh-huh. matched what he drew. So That's true. Yep. I do wonder if she had free will. Now that those pills are gone, it's yeah. it, man. She's going to see him for what he truly is. Perhaps, An perhaps. impotent loser. And she'll probably be called in to investigate the brutal murder of I would say his so. wife. And he never crumpled up the monster drawing, so that monster is just going to be rampaging around the office. You know, the wife did shoot the monster a couple times with that giant hand cannon. We don't know if it was fatal or if that monster is born of pure imagination. Uh-huh. And Does that monster come monsters. from an alternate dimension where comics are real? By the way, the horrible shrew wife character in this episode didn't fit at all all with the rest of the tone she was so wildly cartoonish she was like storming in hands on the hips the only thing she didn't do was like womp them with a rolling pin yeah uh, and everyone else was pretty straight a she was she was real two-dimensional yeah she was written that way so i feel like the actress was just trying to knock it out of the park yeah she did she kind of made the best out of a bad situation but you just kind of blew my mind because she was such a two-dimensional cartoonish shrewish person and we know that jim corman had been on those magic boner pills for a while oh, it's possible do he manifested her that he changed her yes i do because and that's kind of like that episode of rick and morty where uh beth and jerry go to that uh, marriage counseling place and they put on the helmets that kind of creates uh-huh. their psychic their version yeah. of each other. And I wonder if that's what he did to her. Yep. 
I, I think he probably did. Wow. Levels upon levels upon levels. Upon levels. levels. <laughs> Biff. Pow. My submission is an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Entitled The Tale of the Ghastly Grinner. Boing. I gotta put that uh, sound effect transition in there. So in the beginning of this episode, the Midnight Society is having a problem oh. with starting the fire because the logs are wet. And one of the girls is like, here, let me do it. She grabs two sticks and she just rubs them against each other and starts this huge fiery well, blaze. I feel like this, the fiery blaze was started by magic. There's so much magic going on in the Midnight Society this is night. There? Tucker brings a comic randomly. Yeah. And it just so happens that Betty Ann's story is about comics. She, and unless I... they colluded beforehand. Look, the Midnight or that Society Tucker always has, comics. has hundreds of stories. So that could just be a coincidence. It could she's be. like, oh, that reminds me of a story or a theory about comic books. And then she's like... That's not magical. And then she's like, comics come from the mind or whatever. And as soon as she says it, the fire flares up. I think the real magic is that that Two girl, sticks rubbing together. <laughs> you know, presumably those sticks are logs. just as damp as the logs that won't yeah. light. And she rubs those sticks together and... You and I know it is not easy to start a friction fire. Also, you don't rub sticks together to start fire. Oh, not like it's that. It's just not how you do it. There's one method called the fire plow, and it is very mm. specific. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's you rub one stick inside of another sure. stick. Sure. And she was not no, using no, the no. fire plow. So um, as, as, a, as a woodsman... I found that terrible <laughs> yep. bushcraft. It ruined and the whole episode for you. I've, I've, I'm not going to lie. I was very upset about it. Also of note in the intro of this episode, one thing DJ McHale said, he said one of the few notes that Nickelodeon ever gave them was don't show the kids starting the fire because they didn't want to teach little kids in the audience how to start fires. Oh, is and that what they episode, did that bullshit thing with the, they, the sticks? They're trying to start the fire, which I was like, whoa, holy shit. Lies. They well, did show, I mean, they did. They did it in they, a way. I that guess would they didn't show work. any matches or anything. Yeah. I guess. And, and yeah, and then maybe the that's why. <laughs> Still, they were Couldn't really pulling the line there. Fire. Really pushing it. So Ethan is an aspiring comic book artist. He's pretty crappy. I guess he's about the level I was when I was his age. In is he terms crappy? Of art, he's pretty crappy. He, he's not like kindergarten level, but his drawings are nothing special. Huh. I mean, they're fine. I don't know. They had a certain Uncas vibe to them. Yeah. Well. Two things. One is, I could have sworn that that kid was Homer, the child vampire from Near Dark. I had to look it up, and boy, they look similar, but they're not. Ethan has been rejected uh, by every comic book publisher that he has submitted his artwork to, probably because he's a middle school level artist. And he comes home in a rage after getting his... Uh, a fistful of rejection letters. He tears all his artwork off the walls. He thinks he's just the worst loser. He should consider washing his hair once in a while. It might make people think he's less of a loser. He was so goth. He was so... So goth. Yeah, so greasy. But in the detritus of his rage, he finds a very bespoke invitation telling him to come to the grand opening of this comic book shop. And so he does, because he's wicked bored. So he gets to the comic book shop, and he's browsing around. There's nobody in there. And some lady pops up out of nowhere, and she's totally radical and punk with her leather jacket and her short blonde, bleach blonde hair. And in this comic book shop, there are X-Men and Spider-Man and Superman, and I don't know if they bothered buying licenses for these images. I made a note about that as well. Also, in the uh, Tales from the Crypt episode, there was a job of the Hutt. Wow, um, yeah. There was all kinds of property, intellectual property, just 
throughout. Willy nilly. Even the titular comic book, um, which you're about to mention, had a Marvel Comics logo really? on it. Yes. <laughs> I paused it and double checked. Doubtful. Highly doubtful, doubtful that Marvel Comics would have published. Yes. The Tale of the Ghastly Grinner. And in amongst the real comics, there's a fish man and a slime man or something. And she's trying to sell... This comic shop lady's trying to sell Ethan these crappy comics that nobody wants to buy. And he's not interested. So she's like, uh, whatever. What the fuck are you doing here, Cakes? She doesn't know him. She gives him the name Cakes. And he says, well, I got this invitation. And she's like, whoa, holy shit. It's you. I can't believe it. Where's the art? Where's the art? Show me the art. And he's like, whoa, how did you know I was an artist? He's got a real squeaky voice. I'm not doing it justice. Um, and she goes, word gets around, Cakes. That's it. That's the only explanation for how she's heard about him, how she knows he's an artist, how any of this is happening. So he shows her the art, and he's like, man, I really suck. I'm just no good. I'm going to quit and work at a gas station. She says, don't let the Zoomers get you down, Cakes. They don't know what they're talking about. And then she pauses and says, oh my god. You're a little rough around the edges, Cakes. But you got the makings of a young Uncas. And he's like, What? And she says, Sylvester Uncas, you've never heard of him. He only did one comic book, and then he vanished. But he's one of the greats. And she shows him the tale of the ghastly grinner, which is Sylvester Uncas's comic book. And it was so evil that he decided to do only one more episode, the death of the ghastly grinner. But he didn't finish it before he vanished. And so as a prize for Ethan being awesome, she gives him the only existing copy of ghastly grinner comic book. So he gets home, he's loving it. Uh, he goes to school the next day, and he's supposed to be reading his science book, but he's reading The Ghastly Grinner, and the teacher finds it and says, You little bastard, how dare you? He takes the comic book, and he's about to dunk it in the fish tank, and Ethan says, That's one of a kind! And the teacher says, Correction! It's none of a kind! You can't! It's one of a kind! Correction! It's none of a kind! I made a note about that, um... Really good writing in that ep- in that episode. Like really <laughs> sharp punchy, dialogue. Really funny, kind of good, good quippy writing. Oh yeah, well yeah, punchy like a comic book, I guess. Also, um, in that science class, the teacher was demonstrating this giant oh microwaves prism powered microwave thing <laughs> that uh, explodes a hot dog. And then he takes the comic book, and I was like, oh, he's going to put the comic book in the microwave exploder. And maybe that's that's going to be important later. And he, she just puts it in the fish tank. He puts it in the fish that tank. That they hadn't established. <laughs> Very strange. So he gets it home, and he decides that he's going to put it in the microwave? It's all to wet. dry it out, yeah. which is not how microwaves work, really. I mean, I guess it would get warm. Well, the teacher it would was maybe telling evaporate. Him about how water molecules are the, mm. are the things that microwaves Okay, well, target. so, good on you, Ethan. He was paying attention, but his I, parents... I was, too. His parents, who are horrible, slobbish, disgusting people, except they're very nice to him. They're like, ah, teacher said you were giving him crap at school, one more report like this, and you're not going to be reading any more of them comic books. They're addictive, and then they go back to watching TV. Ethan puts the book in the microwave, and then a phone rings, and his mom says, Ethan's for you. It's a girl. And it's this horrible nerd girl from his class, whose name, for all of these years, I thought was Hooper B. Calero. Like, B was her middle initial. Her name's actually Hooper Picolero. Her last name is Picolero. And I only just learned that, so 
God damn. Like, I've been quoting in my brain for years, Hooper Picolero. <laughs> quoting to yourself? For some reason, just because she says it over and over again. I know, yeah. but you just quote it to yourself. Yeah, it, it just runs through my mind every now and again. Is this why you can't sleep? So, probably. So, Hooper Picolero calls him and says, it's just really gross what Mr. Wrightson did to you. And he's like, yeah, thanks. Gee whiz. And then the whole thing explodes. Ethan comes down. He finds his comic with a giant hole in the middle. And as he's airing it out, a ghastly grinner-shaped hole in the kitchen door. And then he's like, Mom, what the hell happened? And she comes in and she's like, don't you worry, Ethan. Just have a smile or whatever. And then she starts laughing maniacally and blue goo comes out of her mouth. His dad comes up behind him. He's also got blue goo coming out of his mouth. And they're all laughing like crazy. And uh, so he runs outside. He hides behind the bushes. And Hooper Picolero's there. She's like coming up to talk to him in person. I don't know. She's like really got the Jones for Ethan. And he like grabs her and pulls her down behind the bush. And she says, I don't have much of a sense of humor. And then her parents go to Ethan's house because apparently they're friends with his parents, even though they don't really know each other. And they're like, come on in, meet Uncle Jake, or whatever they call him. And uh, Ethan's like, That's, I don't have a Uncle Jake. And so Hooper Picolero's parents get uh, ghastly grinnered as well with and the blue goo. At this time, he's trying to explain about the ghastly grinner and this comic book that came to life. And he looks into the the ruins of the comic book and there's pic- there's pictures of them inside the comic book. Has that already happened? Yeah. And he, and so inside the comic book he can see pictures of his parents and getting uh, grinnerized. And her parents right. grinnerized. Um, which is weird. Well the worlds because, are colliding at this yeah. point. It is weird because later he has to complete the comic book. It doesn't just automatically happen. Right. They get on a bus uh, and they're, yeah, they're reading the comic book, and they're seeing all that stuff, and then they see the bus driver, who's also blue gooified, and he cranks his head around, just like in the pilot episode, with the cab driver, and he starts laughing like a crazy person, and then they pull the emergency brake, and the bus driver slams headfirst into the front windshield, most likely dying, although I guess his head already whipped all the way around, so, yeah. neck's probably broken. They get off the bus, they go to the comic book shop, and then... Punk Lady starts explaining to them about how Sylvester Unk has disappeared, they need Ethan to finish the book, and just at that moment, the Ghastly Grinner arrives and grabs Punk Lady in a chokehold and lifts her off the ground, so Hooper Picolero and Ethan run out of there, and Hooper Picolero is, like, super smart, so she knows, and she sees, like, the microwaves in the book, so she somehow figures out that microwaves are the key to destroying the Ghastly Grinner, so they go to the science room... And they close the door, and in the window at the top of the door, some, like, blue goo starts coming down. So I guess the Grinner is, like, on the ceiling, like, hovering above, so that he can spit his blue saliva goo down the window. Yeah, he's always around. He always knows exactly where they are. Maybe he follows the comic book. And uh, the first couple victims, you don't see him at all. You just see his victims. Yeah, you see the aftermath. But, uh, like, you know, we didn't see him nab the bus driver, and yet, you know, it happened real quick. It happened. Someone comes up to the door, and they're like, hide. But it's the science teacher, Mr. Wrightson. And he's like, I hope you assholes have a good explanation for this, you little fucks. And, but uh, but then the ghastly grinner grabs him and turns around, and he's, and the blue comes out of his mouth. And they're like, well, and then they 
I think they shoot them with the microwave oven. They do. They disassemble that giant prison-powered microwave we saw in the beginning, but it has no effect. Okay, no effect. And then I guess Ethan figures out he has to finish the comic book, so he, like, writes himself into the comics? They run back to the comic book store. And he's drawing furiously. He's trying to complete Uncas's issue. Death of the Gassigrinner. Grinner. And then he gets sucked into the comic book. Him and the Ghastly Grinner. Well, the Ghastly Grinner shows up at the comic book store and is attacking Hooperby Piccolero. Oh yeah, he's like holding her braids. Yep. Out and to he's the side. trying to grin her eyes. You need her a good laugh or something. But she doesn't have much of a sense of humor. Previously she had stuffed her ears with paper to prevent hearing the Ghastly Grinner. Oh yeah. But then she just did that for like five minutes and then took him out. Yeah. But she was protected by her lack of sense of humor? Oh, yeah. So he draws, I guess so. So Ethan's so just drawing the comic and he then he like rushes the Ghastly Grinner. And then Grinner. he runs at the Ghastly Grinner and then they both collide and get sucked into, sucked the, into the, the now comic. finished comic. Or being finished in real time. And it's pretty cool because then Hooper B. Calero is watching the book. And you're hearing the action sequence, and it's all done in audio, and it's pretty neat. It's an inventive way to get an action scene without having to spend any money or have, like, stunts. They do recycle some of the illustrations with different levels, though. <laughs> yeah. So um, she's hearing them fight. I'll get you, or whatever. And no, uh, I'm Super Ethan. He draws himself as a superhero, but his superhero name is just Ethan. And he has a big E on his chest. I guess once he took off that, that horrible goth rag. He was somewhat more potent. They figure out microwaves didn't work in my world, but they will in yours, so they get the... Oh, they find Sylvester Uncas in the comic book. Comic book lady is also in there somehow. They get a microwave inside the comic book, and they zap the ghastly grinner. Microwaves! No! And he disappears, and they're like, a job well done. Way to go, Cakes. I always knew you could do it. But then the ghastly grinner's still alive, and he pops up behind them. (laughs) And then Ethan goes, Hooper! So she busts out her giant eraser. So she busts out her giant eraser for big mistakes, which was established earlier, even though she's like a super genius, even she makes mistakes. And she just erases the Grinner's face, and it destroys him, and they, and, and Ethan, comic book lady, and Sylvester Uncas emerge from the comic book, and Sylvester Uncas hands Ethan his drawings and says, I think these belong to you. And then cut to the grand release party of Ethan's comic book, Ethan, quote-unquote, which is like a smash success, even though it's the same crappy middle school art, and it's a superhero called Ethan. And Hooper B. Piccolero is dressed in that same horrible goth smock. <laughs> She's like his manager or something yeah. at this point. And his parents are like suck- soaking up all the uh, acco- the attention and accolades. Yeah, which was a slightly grinnerized kind of way to be, I guess. They don't look normal. Well, they cleaned up a little bit for the cameras. But right. they weren't spouting blue goo out of their mouths. Then... Uh, you know, Ethan lives happily ever after. He and Hooper Picolero probably smash. And then we go out to the Midnight Society, and something that always happens, she says, Sylvester Uncas never drew another comic book. Again. They're, they're always, uh, ending their stories by saying, like, they never, the door never worked again. He never drew another comic again. But Ethan got 
his just desserts or whatever she says. <laughs> his just desserts. <laughs> it's some comic pun, I'm sure. As for Ethan, well, you might say he finally made it into the comics. They kind of established like a thousand different ways you could possibly defeat the Ghastly Grinner, and none of them work. But just erasing him, what did work? And, but if that was the case, then the unfinished drawings probably should have also had some sort of an effect on his power levels or something. It was very strange. The rules were a little all over the place. And also, uh, the punk daughter of Sylvester Uncas lured Ethan to her comic book store under false pretenses. <laughs> yeah, because his, potentially to his doom. His art style was close enough to her father's that she thought... Even though the Ghastly Grinner was so evil and probably abducted her father, she wanted him to complete the issue, the death of the Ghastly Grinner, in the hopes of getting her father back uh-huh. from Indeed. this his theorized dimension of comic books. But she must have known that that was at risk of unleashing the Ghastly Grinner. This she didn't know he was going to put it in a fish tank and then the microwave. But she believed that finishing the comic book would bring her father back. True. And that there was uh, somehow a revolving door from our world into the comic book world. So she must have known that the Ghastly Grinner could come through. And so the Ghastly Grinner is running around and he's like sucking the emotion out of people except for Uncas and the punk daughter which he physically abducted into Into the the comic comic book book. world. Mm. Maybe he just was like stashing them for later. Or maybe because they were a threat to him he had to put them he couldn't just leave them lying around he had to put them somewhere where they couldn't. Couldn't he have just grinnerized them? I guess he could have grinnerized them but then they'd still be out in the real world where he's vulnerable. In this comic but book, he's, he's not vulnerable in the real world. He's, he's only vulnerable inside the comic book. He's dimension. vulnerable inside the comic book to people from outside the comic book. Yes, who can but erase only him. while he is. But if they're inside the comic book and he's inside the comic book, nothing they can do can stop him. Or if they're inside the comic book and he's outside of the comic book, if they're inside of the comic book, nothing they can do can stop him. But if they're outside of the comic book, there is a chance that he can be stopped. Yeah, it was because he has to pretty subscribe complex. to eraser physics. Yes. So I'll leave you with a smile. <laughs> <laughs> Ratings for Corman's Calamity episode of Tales from the Crypt. I'm going to say the scare factor, low. Low. Even if, if if you adjust for Tales from the Crypt and call it shock factor, mm. still pretty low. Still pretty low. Gross factor, um, we definitely had some gore. Yeah. Because we, some... we had the mon- the Battletoad biting that dude's head off, and then we see his severed see head. head. Yeah. And we had a lot of original custom Creatures. monster costumes. I've so, seen grosser. I've seen grosser, but it, you know that gross factor is like a medium. That web-covered slime monster that came out of the fridge—it was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean that was a real EC Comics kind of yep. stylized gross. It also had slime for the what the factor. Uh, you know, I guess I'm no longer bumped by the by the hyperspeed plots of these episodes. Yeah, which just boom, boom, boom. But uh, 
you know, the the shrew wife, who was just like a total cartoon character, gave me a little bit of the what the factor yeah. theme. Uh, yeah, comic, comic books were being made. Comic books were in the wraparound. Uh, the method of the horror manifesting was comic books. So I'd say on theme. Yeah. Pretty high. Yep. Um, what do you think? Tale of the Ghastly Grinner. Scare factor. Scare factor, high for youngins. Really high. Your parents are getting fucked up and zombified. There's like, the Ghastly Grinner's jumping out from everywhere. The bus driver could be like a little scary if you're a tiny little kid. I think if you were a kid, that bus driver thing really and the, yeah with me the out. way their like makeup was done and everything it was pretty ghoulish and it was it was almost aggressive <laughs> like the, the ghastly grinner was attacking people at such a breakneck speed literally breakneck because <laughs> the bus, bus driver's driver. bus turned you know his head turns around yep um that was pretty scary yeah uh, just his makeup and his face. Yeah, he was also yellow, which is an yeah. upsetting color to humans. Yellow is really gross. Uh, speaking of gross, gross factor. Gross factor high. Nobody likes saliva. All right, what the factor? It was fairly straightforward in that they think these, com- you know, that the ghastly grinner is so evil he couldn't finish the comic. But I think he pulled my father into his world, and then surprise, surprise, you put the comic book on the microwave, which is ridiculous. But <laughs> it's well established, and then, yeah, you know, he comes out in our world. None of that stuff was surprising. But when they try the microwaves on him in our world, and it doesn't work, and then they go into the comic book because the microwaves will work there, and it still, and it doesn't, still doesn't work. work. Like I, I feel like that's where the what the factor starts to yeah creep Kick up. into overdrive. Yeah. Also, See. the fact that Ethan could possibly be a hit comic book writer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, theme comic books. 100%. Yeah. As high as the theme was in Tales from the Crypt, even though the comic book illustration is making monsters come alive, the real magic behind it all are the boner pills. boner pills, yeah. Whereas in uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark, they posit that there is a, a separate dimension of comic books. That's where all the ideas are coming from. Where the from. ideas come from, and, and you can go back and forth. So I gotta, I gotta give the edge on Yeah, theme. and they're reading their adventures in a comic book. Yeah. Altering things, yeah. So, I'd say on, on, just, on every factor except for uh, gross factor, I, I give it to Are You Afraid of the Dark? I think it looks like a win in the Rye column for once in the last several episodes. But time to shrew... Definitely. Let me give that to Tales from the Crypt. So, here's a question. If you had these magic boner pills, and I'm not saying you need magic boner pills, and anything you drew would manifest or, or become true, pop into reality, what would you draw? I'd probably draw a house. If you did not draw this house to perfect <laughs> architectural precision, would the house be unstable. Well, as long as the intent of the drawing was a stable house, then it would probably work by magic. Like monster physics? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Draw a monster house? Um, and it could be a magic house that has like magic portals and doors. Yeah. And you could like teleport wherever you wanted to go through the doors. I mean, what were the limits of of these boner pills? As far as I know, nothing. Perhaps the whole universe was in his imagination. And also, I'd draw, like, some sort of talking immortal pet that was, like, part fox and part werewolf, but didn't want to eat me or anything. 
And what would you name this? Fox Wolf. Immortal talk. Fox Wolf? I would name it Beauregard. Okay. <laughs> what would you draw, Jeff? You know, I, I think I would be cautious. Um, I would start out with maybe things like money or gold bars. Probably stuff that couldn't be traced. Sure. Yeah. Which. Good idea. Would maybe be gold and not money because, mm. you know, counterfeiting. Um. And then I would probably get bolder and bolder. But I also wonder if, like, you try to draw a person, would they come out, you know, kind of like a caricature? They came out wrong. Which would be like a a deformity in real life. Would I dedicate myself to the craft of illustration and figure drawing? If I took a figure drawing class, would (laughs) a clone of that naked person appear? They still would have, like, weirdly long shins. (laughs) (laughs) But also, like... Their joints wouldn't quite work properly. When he drew his wife as a monster, it appeared in his office. When he drew a T-Rex, it just appeared in some random woman's car. Yeah, right. And also, he's doing black and white drawings, and they're appearing in full living color and stuff. Yeah. So... I guess I would probably do a lot of experimentation, Death Note oh, style. Me too. To see how accurate it could be, how fast it would happen, the the limits of the thing I'm creating. You know, I was wondering about what it was with microwaves and the ghastly grinner. Do you think it's because he he drools so much, and it's the water <laughs> in his drool? The water content. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I was like, what is the link between know. microwaves and because the Because microwaves are like magic. As long as a paraboloid sustains the initial microwave intensity and the focal region is sufficiently agitated. Special thanks to Jonathan Olson for composing our theme music. You can email him at Stepwise Studios to get your own electronic and synth pop songs. Hey Ryan, what is the superhero's favorite part of the joke? I don't know. The punchline. <laughs> Oh no, Jeff, Jeff, you got the blue goo! Uh, Rewind for your life!